Welcome to another edition of Global Investment Leaders. Thank you all for joining me for another edition of Global Investment Leaders. I am Chaz Burkhart, CEO of Rosemont. I'm pleased to be joined today by Chris McKay, who is Director of Marketing and Client Service and a partner at 1607 Capital Partners in Richmond, Virginia. 1607 is an institutional investment manager managing equity and fixed income closed-end fund portfolios across both U.S. and non-U.S. strategies. Chris, very happy that you could join me today. Likewise, Chaz. Thanks for having me. The pioneering force behind 1607 was Fred Tattersall. And although Fred ran a very successful fixed income business for years, he'd always been keenly interested in the closed-end fund business. And I became aware of that probably 20-ish years ago. And after Fred had sold his fixed income business to one bank, which was then bought by another bank and ultimately hard to figure out where it stood, Fred, I knew, was excited to start 1607. And he had a group of partners that were instrumental in doing that with him. And I met Jim Mallory, Shannon Fake, Ashley Long, and Kirk Tattersall probably 15-ish years ago. And it was clear that they were getting ready to start a compelling business in this closed-end fund space. And off they did. And it quickly became a very compelling success. And today, I think, Chris, the business runs plus or minus $4 billion, depending on the day. Obviously, we've had a very volatile market this year, but four-ish billion of institutional portfolios, which own baskets of closed-end funds, both domestically and internationally. But for, I think, a lot of our listeners... We need a little more explanation on really what the closed-end fund business is and what 1607 does. You bet, Chaz. And you know that's no different than our normal conversations. I think people hear closed-end funds and maybe they think we run closed-end funds. That's certainly not what we do. You know, we are investing in vehicles that, at certain times in their life cycle, may trade at a discount to their net asset value. And we love that dynamic, the ability to buy something that uh, may have a net asset value of a dollar for 80, 85 cents, especially if it normally historically is traded closer to that net asset value. And really what we're in the business of doing is uh, delivering results versus long only benchmarks, utilizing these vehicles and taking advantage of the regression to the mean of these discounts to add alpha and excess return that really isn't available in any other place. It's a very particular investment niche. There are a few other firms that are specialists in it, but not many. And I think the investment engine is really worth talking about. But before we go there, let's come back now that we've kind of established what 1607 uh, does and is. Talk a little bit about your decision to leave private advisors in Richmond, where you had a very successful career to join 1607. Just some of the thought process behind that. Sure. Uh, you know, uh, I was at uh, private advisors for close to 15 years. It was a great group of people, really good investors. Um, and when I joined the firm, uh, we were under 30 people, three and a half billion in assets. And um, we had an amazing experience of transitioning that business from sort of the traditional hedge fund of funds and private equity fund of funds business to doing a lot more direct uh, investing, whether it be through co-investments or other forms of direct investing. Um, at the end of the day, I, I realized, you know, from my personality and my skill set that I've uh, built over the last 25 years, that I was much better suited to a smaller 
independent investment boutique. There are a lot of different ways to run asset management businesses, Chaz, you see them all. I just realized that uh, being at a firm that was owned independently, that was really focused on one strategy and one strategy only, made a lot more sense for this stage of my career. So the opportunity came where Kirk Tattersall uh, wanted to retire and move on and was looking for his replacement and a uh, common peer of ours uh, introduced us back in the fall of 19. And I joined um, about a year and a half later. Auspicious timing in terms of COVID and all the work from home and kind of getting yourself integrated into a business and assuming significant responsibility during this period. So kudos to you. And I'm so glad you made that decision. Me too. Let's, um, so let's start with the investment engine, because as you described the closed end fund niche that 1607 traffics in, I think that the way 1607 approaches um, the investment process, both with its quantitative screens and the, I think the kind of deep specialist knowledge that your partners and colleagues have in this world is, it's very noteworthy. Talk for a little bit about how 1607 winnows down a significant universe to make the investments it does and just kind of how that investment process moves, you know, week to week, month to month, quarter to quarter. Right. There's a lot to unpack there. So I'll try to make it brief. This could be an hour conversation on this topic <laughs> alone. Um, but, I, but listen, I think it all starts with we are operating in a very specific niche within the closed end fund space globally. Uh, we trade in markets all over the world. But in reality, for instance, our largest strategy is Develop Market International uh, consists of over 300 funds and roughly 200 plus billion dollars. And while that number sounds like a lot, um, especially my high school kids, in reality, that 200 billion represents uh, almost the amount of cash that Apple has on its balance sheet. So it is a small niche universe. Our team has been specializing in this space for over 30 years, and we have compiled a data set that we believe is the largest data set on closed-end funds globally anywhere. The core strategy that we've been investing hasn't changed a lot since Fred and Jim and Shannon and Ashley were together doing it. I would say the difference has been is the way that core founding partners have built out our investment team to have a generation two and now a generation three. Uh, we've gone from three investors to now eight. And secondarily, you alluded to it, but is really important are quantitative capabilities today versus literally uh, graphing discounts back in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s that then went to Excel, held together by macros, and now it's a full data warehouse that is maintained by our quant team. And that really allows us to look at more data faster, more efficiently all around the world and execute the same core strategy of buying less than a dollar's worth of assets for a uh, price in relation to where we think it's going to revert back to into the future. So core strategy remains the same. The way we're executing it has certainly evolved quite a bit since the early 90s. No, I think it's good to note that both uh, Jim and Shannon, as well as Ashley, have significant experience analyzing a very large universe within this systematic chassis. And so have great familiarity with a lot of the movements and characteristics of a number of the funds which they have owned and or traded in from, from time to time and over the years. So G2 has been a big force in helping develop the company and in its evolution. And you've been a big part of that, Chris, 
I think, in professionalizing and further commercializing the sales, marketing, and client service process. Well, thank you. I, if I just go back to the investment team, I think you're absolutely right. I think one of the, the key to any successful organization is that investment professionals, as they learn, it's an apprenticeship business. You know, Jim, Shannon, and Ashley learned from Fred. Now, Ryan, Tori, Ruyi are learning from Jim, Ashley, and, and Shannon. And, and I think that's just super important, especially when you're investing in a niche space like this, that they're not just getting a system. They're not just getting you know, a black box, but they're truly learning alongside of people that have been executing the strategy for literally decades. It's just not, I don't think it's something that can be overappreciated in our business. And one thing I should note, and I haven't done it yet, and for those that would not know, Rosemont is a minority investor in 1607. And in fact, it was our first permanent capital investment through Markel. Very excited to do that. And for those that would think that there's a lot going on in Richmond, obviously we had a long relationship with Fred and Kirk and then the team well prior to this investment. And I'd only met Markel in the last five years. So it was just complete a wonderful confluence of circumstances that led to our having this investment base in Richmond. But we are a minority owner in the business. And one of the things that drew us to um, really appreciate the way this company is run and be very hopeful about its future, A, that it was capacity constrained. It wasn't a company just kind of looking to grow each of these strategies to the moon. Um, and that they were uh, very disciplined and very intentional about how they wanted to run money, who they wanted to run money for, the kinds of clients um, and marketing efforts that would appreciate what 1607 does. Talk for a second about how you manage the marketing and client service roles in the company. Yeah, I think it's, uh, let me just take a step back and, and tell you a little bit about what our existing client base looks like. And then we can talk a little bit about how we work with those clients. In general terms, as you alluded to in the intro, uh, most of our clients are large, sophisticated institutions. These are entities that really appreciate, I think, two things about 1607's returns and, and processes. One, um, our returns tend to be very consistent. If you look at information ratio of the strategies, it's very high. Um, and then secondly, uh, they're getting excess return from a differentiated uh, source from virtually all of their other managers. So for instance, going back again to international equities, if we're paired with one or two other international equity managers, they're likely deriving their risk and return from either stock specific risk or allocation um, uh, alpha, where we're delivering 70% plus of our alpha historically comes from that discount reversion piece. So almost all of our strategies have a beta of one, yet they're providing significant excess return from an a completely dislocated source from most of the managers elsewhere in the portfolio. Um, so that's why I think if you look at our client base, over 50% of our clients have been a client for over a decade. And we've got a couple of clients that have been um, clients for over 30 years. So it really speaks to the long-term partnership that we're looking to build with clients. Um, our firm has a very client-centric view we don't have thousands of clients, so therefore we can go much deeper with those clients, learn uh, from what their needs are, listen 
to uh, what their challenges are, and then as appropriate, suggest solutions where we can be helpful. How has the index phenomenon and cheap beta and kind of the passive onslaught in the equity world specifically affected you? Yeah, I think it's it's affected us more on the domestic side. We launched a domestic strategy several years ago, and while we've been able to outperform on a uh, overall basis in that strategy, the discount piece has been as predictable or as impressive of any other market we trade, but the headwind of active management has uh, eaten away a lot of that, that discount alpha, if you will. And certainly we think, you know, a lot of the index phenomenon of having large percentages in, you know, a very narrow market has made it tougher for all active managers, uh, specifically in the U.S. large cap space, to add value. We see it less so as a challenge on the fixed income side and the international side, but certainly domestically, it's, it's been a greater challenge. Well, I think, Chris, that speaks to the divide between those that would suggest that they're will increasingly be two types of firms in the universe broadly going forward, two types of managers. One will be the very large, lower cost beta providers, and whether that's ETF, index, kind of any form of essentially passive product at very low cost versus the niche investment specialists, often smaller boutiques, often highly focused businesses that are very concerned with capacity and doing what they do extremely well. And I think it's one of the things that drew us to 1607. And in the four years almost that we have been associated with the firm kind of consistently shows. Um, and I think that probably was something that you took notice of when you did your due diligence on the company. No question. I think that middle spot is going to be very difficult for asset managers. Um, the small niche, nimble, independently owned, I think uh, have clear uh, mandates and, and interest. The large behemoths that can compete at scale have a lot of uh, potential uh, growth, but it's it's that middle part that I think is going to be really tough over the next decade. I think one of the other things that we noticed early on in meeting with the firm and your colleagues is that there's a really strong culture and a culture and a vibe that is both very positive, very work-focused, very collegial. There was kind of no red flag and still today, you know, with, with all the time that we spend together, you know, we just saw a really great esprit de corps across the firm. Talk in your words, perhaps, about how the firm is run, and especially through this challenge of having some work from home and the, the remote criteria that uh, you know, you've all had to implement uh, as the pandemic hit and you had to be safe, but also had to make sure that you were running the firm thoughtfully. I feel like 1607 has dealt with this particularly well. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think if I step back and think about, you know, a couple words that describes our culture at 1607, the ones that pop to mind immediately are familial and investment driven. I guess investment driven is a couple words, phrase. But familial, what I mean by that is I think the firm takes it really, really serious on bringing on new people. Uh, we really want to find um, our is that person a great investor? Are they a potential great team member? Um, but also, do we think that they're a very high character person who will fit well within the given organization? And then from that point, we invest a lot in the development and happiness of those individuals. So for instance, we have certain programs, whether it be benefits, 
or PTO or those types of things that I can tell you from a benchmark perspective, I have not seen in my 25 year career. And essentially the way they're set forth is the longer you're here, the more and more opportunities to take advantage of some of those benefits over time. And I think that's why in the entire firm's history, we've had one resignation. That's it. And so I, I think there's that sense that people here feel like they're part of a family. And I think that's, that's really important from the, uh, the qualitative cultural fit. On the other side, the investment-driven side, I think that emphasizes what we're here to do. We are an investment firm here for the benefit of our clients. And everything we do every single day is, is built around that. I remember when I arrived here, uh, you know, I got a group email one in the morning and one in the afternoon that has the performance of every single account that we advise on. So it's right in front of us twice a day of why we're here and what we're, what we're to do. So I think those two things really uh, hit home and there's a lot of other you know, adjectives we could use along the way, but if I distilled it to two, those, those are the two. If I were to add one, Chris, I would add consistency. Because from where I sit over the 14 years of the firm's existence and my following uh, the partners for a few years before that, and obviously, you know, starting with the Tattersalls, watching this business unfold and then watching it grow and watching how it grew and how the partners ran the business, ran the investment process, dealt with technology, HR, compliance, whatever it was, there was just always this great consistency. I never felt wow, they are acting in a way that seems quite odd, or they're saying something or doing something that seems not at all in keeping with the way they've run the business here to four. It's been an incredibly consistent approach. I think it just speaks to quality and clarity. They're just very clear on what they want to do and, and what they're not doing. And, and a lot of that goes back to that, that investment side, because one thing that, you know, we talked about how small the universe is. So the team has been very disciplined about how much capital they're willing to accept at any given time. Why? Because we feel that if we grow too big too fast, it'll dilute the investment return for our clients. And there's not a lot of firms that say, uh, no, we're going to close our main strategy for you know year after year after year, because we believe that if we take in more money, which again would theoretically be an economic benefit to the firm, uh, it's going to water down our results. So um, I think, again, part of that consistency has been derived from that, that discipline and that focus on, on uh, being an investment-driven organization. But great point. And I think one of the things about the 2022 market crises and deterioration and then volatility uh, has been that, obviously, it has a direct impact on revenues. And even though we're in the early years of our relationship, I think, A, the partners knew uh, me and Rosemont and the partners knew Markel. And I think they knew immediately that there was going to be no short-term focus. We were not going to be measuring the success of the business over one, three, or five years. This is hopefully a multi-decade investment, which fits very well with the way the partners think about being able to run the firm and not having anybody looking over their shoulders going, well, God, you know, we, we've really hit a kind of a downward patch and things could be rough for a little bit. Um, it just It's not the way we think about it at all. And I think that's part of why it makes for a good partnership between Rosemont and 1607. But maybe talk for a second about the Rosemont relationship and what it's done for the company from your perspective. 
Sure. You know, we talked about the small being well-positioned and the large maybe being well-positioned. Um, if, I, if I step back and I think about what makes small investment boutiques successful, these are all my opinions, of course, but in observing for 25 plus years, um, I'd go back to one of the ones that I just mentioned. They have to be investment driven. They have to realize that at the end of the day, that's what we are paid to do. And that has to be first and foremost. Uh, I think they've got to be client focused. They've got to listen to their clients. We had an experience last year where a client was telling us during one of our uh, uh, updates that their fixed income benchmark had evolved. And instead of saying, oh, well, that's interesting, we said, well, tell us about that evolution. And we came back with some ideas about how we could potentially mimic that evolution in one of their strategies uh, to their benefit. And we worked over six, six months and created a customized solution for them. So again, I'm, I'm touting our own horn there, but um, you know, certainly having a limited client base allows you to have those conversations. And then lastly, uh, I really believe that the majority of the equity has to be held internally uh, over a long period of time for these smaller firms to be successful. And it has to be an owner operator type mentality at the firm. Um, understanding that uh, long-term investments take time to develop, um, and there's often um, some short-term sacrifices. So all of that to say as a background, how do I see Rosemont fitting in with that? Obviously, exceptionally well. Um, Rosemont came in and took a minority position in our business, uh, which also allowed us to um, transition ownership to the second generation in a very meaningful way already in the first three years of our relationship. Um, we couldn't have done that without Rosemont. So the thoughtfulness and putting together that program, the ability to monetize some of the founders capital, um, you know, really enables us to, to continue with a very long-term gen two, gen three, gen four mindset at 1607. Um, it also, you know, allows us a really good objective voice of what other firms are doing as challenges arise. So I've worked at a couple of different places before. Some of our other partners have as well. Uh, we all have experiences, but your and Brad uh, and your team's experience really lends a um, much wider uh, view to what others have done or are doing to address certain challenges within, within the business. And then lastly, I think you said, you know, you understand that we're capacity constrained. There aren't a lot of owners that understand that. There aren't a lot of owners that say, we want you to continue to do what you're doing thoughtfully because we, again, know that investment returns will drive all future outcomes down the road. Listen, do we want to grow? Absolutely. But we want to do it very thoughtfully, systematically, and slowly like we have in the past. And our partnership, you understanding us, what we do, why we do it allows us to uh, to continue that mindset. Appreciate that, Chris. And I think you and I both know there's no shortage of investors out there that have an uber growth or hyper growth mindset. And it's something that's got to be achieved and delivered within four, five, six, seven years. And especially in the market conditions that we've seen in 2022, the pressures that are evolving from that kind of a mindset. So yeah, no, I'm, I'm very comfortable with the long-term positioning of 1607 and the fact that if you look back over almost any period, any number of rolling years or quarters, um, 1607 has an enviable track record uh, in all of its strategies. It's one of the very few firms 
of the many, many hundreds that we have worked with or looked at over time that can say that. And again, back to the consistency. That's right. I wouldn't call us a tortoise, but we certainly have taken a lot of lessons from, from that fable. There are positives to being a tortoise. That's right. Let's finish, Chris, with your aspirations and your partner's aspirations for 1607, kind of where you see the business going and evolving. Are there kind of any changes, innovation, other things that you would point out in the competitive landscape that you will be keeping your eye on? Or kind of how do you see the near-term future? Yeah, uh, as I think about that, again, I'm going to sound like a beating a dead horse, but first and foremost, we want to just keep delivering great investment results for our clients. You know, everybody can say that, but, you know, day in, day out, blocking and tackling, that's what we want to continue to do. Secondly, we have in the past, I won't call them great innovations, but we have sought out other markets where we can apply the same strategy of buying discounted assets that have volatile discounts and harvesting that discount volatility to the benefit of clients. So the strategy first started out solely in fixed income with Fred at Tatter Cell Advisory Group. It evolved into international equities in 1988. We then have launched a previous discussed domestic equity strategy in the last five years. And then lastly, we relaunched a municipal product, which is probably the most volatile closed-end fund space anywhere in the world uh, to the benefit of taxable investors. So as I think about the future, there will be other opportunities to find similar type vehicles or differing markets where we can build expertise around and potentially develop a strategy that can take advantage of, the, of that discount volatility. So we're not going to go into a strategy that we don't have an expertise in or doesn't uh, rhyme highly with what we've done in the past. But certainly we believe that there are other areas that we'll be able to apply our methodology and experience to in the future. And then lastly, I think everybody at the firm really wants to continue to build a firm that can survive all of us into the future to continue to do this service to the benefit of clients and uh, have an independent firm that's here for Gen 3, Gen 4, and Gen 5. And that excites us. You know, hiring and finding talent that we can uh, come alongside, build up their experience set and expertise, and then that someday over time, they will be those owner operators at 1607 into the future. Couldn't agree more with that last point. You know, that's absolutely critical to Rosemont. And we are so appreciative and happy of the folks in their 30s and 40s who are partners and up and coming folks at 1607 even though, as we have acknowledged, it's a relatively small firm at 16 people? 17 now, yep. 17 as of now. It really puts a focus on the excellence of the job. And one of the things that Rosemont has long touted as important is functional excellence. I think 1607 has that in spades. And I think in part, the fact that we've got a number of folks coming up early in their career who are already instrumental to the firm's success makes me pretty excited for the next 10, 15, 20 plus years. Likewise, we're really excited to continue what we're doing and find maybe some small areas to continue to innovate and uh, find opportunities to apply what we've learned over the past decades. Well, we will look forward to exploring that with you, Chris. I really appreciate you being my guest today and uh, onwards and upwards. Likewise, really enjoyed the conversation. 